Let's hear you, Ed. Uh, yeah, you good. My level's fine. Okay. Just uh, got a, a tweet from David Stretch via Twitter at AV Forums. Hi. Love the podcast, but can someone please buy Ed a new microphone so he doesn't sound like he's talking through a sock? Um, all right. Okay. Well, I'll see what I can do. I've got, I've got to sounds. say, you don't sound very socky. Today. Well, it really—it's more, I think, down to poor microphone placement. If I get animated, <laughs> shut up. If I get animated, I tend to move my head and then don't move the mic. So. Let's. But, but have we ever gotten you animated? <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Davy Forum's podcast for Wednesday the 19th of August and joining me on this edition are Assistant Editor Steve Withers. Can to make anything disappear, please let me know. I've got an Assistant Editor who has outlived his usefulness. Uh, the other Mark, Hodgkinson. What do you mean the other Mark? There's only one Mark here. Help me. Help me be human. And audio reviewer Ed Selly. Do you normally take coffee with your sugar? The, the reason I said the other Mark, it seems to be we're, we're, we're either have... Well, we a, only have a bit aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> they're never in the same podcast together I think there's something going on there so Mark tell us what we can win in the competitions stuff good stuff okay Blu-rays two of them War of the Roses uh, Danny DeVito Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner any good can't remember I've seen it favourite films I've seen it I think I probably enjoyed it it was the 80s it was the 80s it is very 80s who's who's favourite film Ed one of my wife's favourite films. One of your wife's? One of my wife's, yeah. <laughs> Stop saying. Uh, Kelly's Heroes on Blu-ray also, which I think I enjoyed as well. I can't remember much about it. <laughs> um, and then a, a bundle of stuff from Scan, which is a keyboard, mouse, PSU and a case worth £160. Okay. Any previous Wait. winners? Possibly. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's the same competitions we've been announcing for weeks. They all end at the end of the month, don't they, really? So we'll have some winners at the beginning of September. September. (laughs) Probably in the EFA special. More on that later. Right, Uh, let's move on. Our first look at Denon's new X3200. I did the 3100 about six months ago, Steve. Yeah. Uh, Didn't have Atmos or DTSX, but it was an absolute stonker of an AV receiver. So you've got the new one. Uh, What's your first impressions? First impressions, very good. As you said, Phil, the X3100 was was great. This uh, is, is essentially the same book with the addition of Dolby Atmos and it will have DTS-X uh, when they release a firmware update for it. Um, it's capable of doing it. It's just waiting for the firmware update, as I believe are all the manufacturers at the moment. I don't think anything yet actually decodes DTS-X. Um, I'm expecting, in the case of Denon at least, expecting this up firmware update to be probably late October, November. Um, but if you buy it, it will get the update at some point. So you'll have both of the formats, both of the dominant formats, or we expect to be dominant formats, although up to now, I must say, things have been pretty quiet on the DTSX front. But things are going gangbusters as far as Dolby Atmos goes. There's been lots of announcements recently for more discs, so that's good news. Um, Performance-wise, I think it's really good. It's It's got all the great things I like about Denon's receivers these days. Um, first of all, they really simplified the back panel. I think, as you noticed on yours, uh, it's mostly just HDMI inputs and outputs. Uh, seven on the back, one on the front, and two outputs. These outputs are all HDMI 2.0 with HTCP 2.2 um, support. So a bit of future-proofing there, which is good to see. Um, 
simplified remote control. Um, it's got the uh, setup procedures, the, you know, the system, setup assistant, I think they call it, which um, takes you through the process of setting up. So if you're new to receivers, and this is targeted at that kind of price point, £750, so you know it's not um, overly expensive. If you're new to them, it, it takes you through the process um, simply and logically uh, and, and makes it as intuitive as possible for, for users. And I think that's really good because in the past, a lot of AB receivers have, uh, have had masses of inputs on the back, most of which you're probably never going to use, and loads of buttons on the remote control, all of which is a bit scary for, for some, some consumers, particularly those that are new to AVRs. So it's got that. It's a 7.2-channel receiver, so 7 channels amplification, uh, which basically means you are restricted to a certain extent in terms of what you can do with regards to either Atmos or, or, or um, DTSX. So you can do uh, 7.2 standard 7-channel you know, um, setup, or you can do 5. 2.2, um, which basically means five channels of, of you know, normal surround and on two channels above you. There aren't any pre-outs to add any more to that. So it's basically limiting you to uh, either 5.1, or 5.1.2. Uh, so there's a bit of, you know, in that sense, it kind of falls between two stalls because you could get the X2200, which is very similar in terms of what it can do. It does X, DTSX and Atmos as well. But that's only about five hundred pounds, or you can go a little bit higher, up to a thousand quid and, and above, and then go for the new um, four two hundreds coming out, which will give you a bit more flexibility in terms of setup. So it kind of does fall a little between two stools. As a performer, it's great. It really works. It, it sounds great. I really was really impressed with it. I just think that maybe depending on your point of view, uh, you know, if you're thinking I'm, I'm tight on money. You know, I want to get something relatively cheap, then you might want to look at the X200 because it's only going to be 500 quid. If you've got a bit more money to spend and you want a bit more flexibility in terms of um, in terms of immersive surround formats, then you might want to look at uh, the 4200 what, instead. What do you mean by that, Steve? Are you talking about... Well, well, no, what I mean is, is that that will have, even if it, I think it's got nine channels for one thing, so that gives you the immediate option of doing 7.1.2. So having seven channels of normal surround plus... Uh, two overheads and I think we were talking about with um, THX losing the two rear channels may not be a big deal when you're just listening to uh, a 5.1 soundtrack but it can make a big difference if you're listening to an Atmos soundtrack because you kind of have a hole in that surround field behind you um, and, you, and there's no way of filling that basically yeah with this obviously in in a larger room I would agree with that but in a in a small room let's say 15 feet by what 10 feet you're not going to use some tripoles then a 5.2.2 is going to work pretty well, to be honest. Yeah, well, you could do. I'm just saying, you know, I'm just pointing out that there's a, you're, you're kind of limited in terms of upgradability if you wanted to add more things later. You can't. You're stuck with, that's the limit of what it can do, basically. But in terms of performance, what, what I'm saying is that, is that, you know, you can do a lot of this with the, with the 200, the X2200 the as well, which is cheaper. So it is kind of sitting between two, between two different receivers, which... What's, often, a di what's uh, the difference then? Is it power... Yeah, basically it's power. So again, depends on the size of your room and how much power you want. Um, certainly, um, the Depen depends on your speakers as well. How sensitive yeah, and the three the three two hundred uh, certainly had had uh, plenty of power for any a normal what I would consider to be a, a regular system in a, in a normal room. No question about that. Um, other things it's got it's got uh, built in Wi Fi and Bluetooth. Very easy to set up. Um, it also will be compatible with um, Denon's HEOS um, multi-room system, which is another nice little feature. And you've got, um, what else have you got? Oh, Spotify is built in, if you want Spotify Connect. So, you know, it's 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 a really nicely designed, sensibly laid out, 
uh, easy to use receiver that's going to certainly appeal to anyone looking in that kind of 500 to a thousand pound price bracket i've got to say i really like their amps um and like you say i mean the 3100 i had that driving um not only the mnks but also the uh xtz's um which they're both four ohm loads and not the most sensitive speakers in the world usually quite difficult to drive and uh, the 3100 drove them without any issues so the 3200 I'd imagine it's going to be the same just with yeah, the upgraded Dolby and so on. So in terms of power, it, I couldn't fault the 3100 unless you were really pushing it and then it become brittle as it, you know, as it run out of headroom. But for reasonable listening levels, just below reference. Uh, yeah, I, I think for a realistic listening level in most people's lounges, <laughs> I think it'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to be honest, when you talk about reference levels, you can't listen to stuff at that, at that, at that volume in m- most people's homes, I don't think, unless it's in a dedicated room. It's just not practical because <laughs> it's pretty loud. Eh? Uh, at reference level, it can get pretty loud. What? Being, uh, Are you gone having deaf? your chain yanked. Yes, dear. just a bit. <laughs> but yeah, um, overall, yeah. Uh, very impressive. Um, and, and I've got to say, you know, considering all of it, that, all that it does, if it wasn't for the fact there's the X2200 as well, I'd be saying that's a hell of a price. But uh, given I know there's one, uh, not as powerful, granted, but a receiver below that that also does Atmos at DTSX for 500 quid, that's a hell of a price. But um, it's still it's still competitively a price. It's well-designed. It does the job nicely. Um, yeah, very good. Very impressive. I think the, the 500 quid one, you would take a punt on that if you were waiting to see which way the market's going to go, I think. Uh, you don't mind 500 quid, you know, as, as a stopgap, do you? I think anything over that then... Um, like you say, it starts to become a bit of well, I'm I'm making an investment here, or is that just me? Am I just happy to throw away five hundred quid? No, I think most people would call five hundred pound or less that be a budget receiver. I don't think a thousand pounds will be classed as a budget receiver. So that and that is that strange area, though, isn't it? That kind of you know less than five hundred quid. Okay, that's a budget receiver. More than a grand, you're looking at a fairly higher spec receiver. And then there's that kind of mid area. Where, where a lot of receivers do sit between the 500 and the thousand one and a half thousand quid um you know which is a lot of money but you, you can you can get some really impressive performance out of, out of a few hundred quid more that's what i'm saying and and a bit more flexibility it depends on what, what's going to happen but at least you know you know that if you buy this receiver you're covered for both gtsx and atmos so whatever happens you're going to be fine all right so steve this is 750 quid is that what you're saying? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you. So with that, if you want to listen to records, you're going to add Ed's uh, latest suggestion, uh, which is three thousand <laughs> seven hundred and fifty pounds for a record player. Ed. Yeah. Once again, man of the people that I am. <laughs> um, we, uh, Phil and I, we had a bit of a, a an exchange of emails, and having done the four turntables that we originally talked about, um, the last of which was the clear audio, one thing led to another. I don't want to talk too much about the review because the review doesn't go up until next week. It has been written. That's not me stalling for more time, unusually. Um, this last turntable is another leap up from the clear audio. And the reason why it's been featured is because it makes some claims, mostly legitimate, that it is um, perhaps the most affordable. And I know that that's a, a loose what use of the word when it's 3750 quid uh, of a super deck that is to say a completely compromise free biblical piece of analog engineering so yes we've, we we've stretched the stretched the boundaries a bit bit more to have a look at a turntable that includes some i mean the the, the motor 
for just by way of example, the motor is a separate piece of equipment and it weighs more than I, th- I, I certainly the first two turntables that we reviewed <laughs> put together um, and very possibly uh, weighs, as, I think, as much on its own as the Avid turntable that we did as the, as the third deck. Um, the tone arm is longer than usual. It's, it's a very big piece of equipment. It tips the scales at comfortably over 20 kilos. Um, so, yeah, we wanted just wanted to see what happens if you, you take what, what, one further step. Um, now, I've put in the copy, and we've discussed in an editorial sense, this is probably as high as we're ever going to go. Thank with God. Record. Well, yes, absolutely. But uh, need I remind you, it was you that passed me the email for this thing in the first place. I just did what I was told. <laughs> Famous last words of the week, I know. But um, nonetheless, um, we do... The re- response to the turntable reviews has been very positive. So, uh, you know, uh, we, the general consensus is we'd like to do some more. But rather than me just picking stuff up because i like the look of it i'm throwing throwing it out to podcast listeners and and people that chop in on the thread where do you want to see us go next is there anything specifically interests you in the context of vinyl replay is there do you want perhaps another guide on actually getting the best out of your existing turntable Throw me some suggestions and we can work it into the schedule and work out what's practical. Are these, um, I've got one for you. Are these cheap DJ turntables worth the money uh, in terms of listening back to quality audio? Well, the short answer is I'm not sure. The irony is because a lot of the cheap DJ turntables are commit the cardinal sin in terms of being a DJ turntable of not being direct drive, there's possibly the chance that they're actually quite sort of refined things. They just won't stand up to very much DJing, which sort of rather negates the point. But we'll, we'll see. So, yeah, we can have a look at that. Um, obviously, yeah, I've remarked in the past that a number of products that you don't really expect to have phono stages, Yamaha AV receivers being the classic example, do. But if you want to have a look, wants to have a look at um, options to get a turntable talking to your um, AV system, we can do things like that. Well, as well. I definitely think there's there's uh, some interest on an easy way of adding a turntable into your system. Uh, maybe it's something that Steve could look at rather than you, Ed. Yeah. Because I think Steve, you're you're not quite up to Ed's um, £3,750 being a budget turntable standard yet. Um, <laughs> no, well, I'll put a yet in there, as if he's going to fall <laughs> to the analogue dark side. <laughs> well, I, I, I think this is this is worthy of a test. So a, a middle-of-the-road AVR connected, uh, a turntable connected to that of some description, um, and you get hold of a couple of records and see what you think. I think that, yeah, that would make an interesting article. There's definitely been a couple of um, receiver. Oh, sorry, a couple of tuners that. Uh, hang on, let me start that again. <laughs> There's definitely been a couple of turntables that have been released recently, and Ed pointed one in my direction, which is the Project. And there's also been one announced quite recently for Musical Fidelity, where there are turntables that are aimed at connecting to um, a receiver or um, you know a digital system rather than using a um, phono stage. Yeah, there's um, it it's uh not an easy process to do, but yeah, it's um, it it it's the most logical thing is to is to get a signal out out of the record player as a digital one, which allows you to then make use of the the processing inherent in your AB receiver if you want to, or just run it direct. Um, or in a stereo sense, you've got lots of people just running DAC fronted systems, and you can you can pop 
uh, a digital signal straight into that. It's also worth saying there's a number of people that are very derogatory about that as a methodology, but um, it's not a budget thing by any stretch of the imagination. There are companies out there who use phono stages that just as a matter of course in their relationship to their other electronics convert from uh, analog to digital. And one of those is Lin. So if you go for the full fat exact systems uh, that, that I went up to see during my Lin visit some, some time ago, did for the forums, that um, if you then connect an LP12 to that, it, it, the signal's being digitized. But I can assure you, in no uncertain terms, it still sounds very, very much, it's, it sounds like an LP12. So if the digital conversion is done correctly, it makes no odds at all, um, the fact that you're then converting the sig signal to digital. Um, so it, it shouldn't be a performance impediment if it's done properly. So there you go, Steve. Your mission is... Should you choose to accept it? Well, whether you accept it or not. Uh, no, you didn't get any choice in the matter. <laughs> well, I always wondered that about Mission Impossible. So what happens if the guy said, actually, you know what? I don't fancy doing that mission. Would that be the end of the episode then? Would it? Yeah, and, and when you think about what they get up to, I mean, that pay packet must be massive. <laughs> anyway, sidetracked. Uh, you're going to get these in, aren't you, Steve? Yeah, that's the plan, yes. Okay, uh, let's get back to something that we actually know something about. Um, <laughs> and and even then, it's arguable. Um, top tips for setting up your projector. Uh, it's only taken six months to do this, Steve. We kind of quickly covered it uh, last month and run out of time. So let's look at it in a little bit more depth. It's one of these things, it's something that I stand by and always have stood by and said, yeah, you know, your fancy TVs, your OLEDs, your plasmas, your... I was going to say LED LCDs, but I've never seen one that actually gives a cinematic performance. None of them can touch a projected image. And the projected image is just something to behold. Absolutely. I think uh, when it comes to home cinema, and I believe we might have said this before, size does matter. And you get more bang for your buck from a projector than you will off of any television, no matter how big that screen might be. And as Phil said, I think... It's something to do with the fact that it's projected, but it genuinely feels cinematic all the time, not just because it's a big image, but because it's projected as well. There's this real sense that you're watching a cinematic film-like image. Um, obviously, different technologies behave in different ways, and some projectors are more cinematic and film-like than others, but definitely for my money, and I'm sure Phil will agree with this, it, you know, if you want to get that real home cinema experience, you need to get a projector. And the, and the funny thing is that it's not as expensive or as difficult as people might think it is. In fact, I would say it's considerably cheaper usually than buying a large TV, probably easier to install than buying a large TV, um, and actually takes up a lot less space than buying a large TV. Because, you know, theoretically, if you wanted to do this initially as, as a starting point, you could even just use a white wall uh, for projection. I mean, it will work. You know, obviously, for the best performance, you want to try and get a dedicated screen of some sort, but you could use a white wall as long yeah. as it was um, smooth and flat and no un unevenness on it and, um, the only and that thing, white wall. The only thing with a, with a white wall is it needs to be temporary um, because the point is that you're shining light and that light has to shine back at you. And that's mm. the big area where a screen does the job for you it reflects that light back into the room so you get a nice bright image at the seating position. You can project it against a wall, but depending on the wall surface, depending on the paint and all the rest of it, you're not getting that light back um, and it's scattering in all different directions in the room. So yes, projector screens, they cost some money, but they cost money for a reason and the reason is pretty good because they actually work and, and they do a good job. And that brings us on to gain. 
and a lot of issues with gain because people think, well, I haven't got a very bright projector, so I'm going to get a, a high gain screen. Wrong move. Do not be tempted to do that. Why, Steve? The higher the gain, the narrower the viewing angle is, and the more likely you are to get hotspots, which is basically bits of the image which are brighter than the others. Um, um, you can have a bit of gain. There's nothing wrong with a bit of gain. Maybe 1.4 would be fine. But when you start seeing these 2.5 gain screens, you know, unless you're sat dead center, you're going to have a big fall off in performance. Now you have and you have actual experience of this, don't you? Because you used to have a Stuart yeah. screen, and, and I had a Stuart, it was Stuart hit one one thirty, which is a one point three gain screen. Now that's not a lot of gain, actually. That's a very low gain screen, in fact. And when I originally used that screen uh, in a room with white walls, it was fine. It worked really well. I mean, the projector I was using was uh, JVC. It was an HD 100, so it wasn't the brightest projector, and it worked very well with that particular screen in that environment. When I moved and put that screen into a pitch black room, I could see visible sparklies on the on the surface. Um, very distracting. And and that's because it, was, it wasn't invite, intended for that environment. For a pitch black room, you want to use a Unity gain screen, a 1.0 1, 1 gain. No, in other words, it reflects back what it receives, and that's it. Um, that's the ideal screen for an environment like that. I, I even you, use a negative gain screen in yeah? my room. Yes, it's a 0 0.8. Why is that? Just to make uh, the blacks a little bit darker? Or? Yeah, well, because it's a pitch black room, and the other thing is that it's acoustically transparent as well, so uh, you're automatically losing uh, light coming back from that mm. because you've got tiny little holes everywhere across the screen to let the audio through. But I, I just think it, it looks nicer and it suits my room, which obviously comes back to the majorly important thing, which is the room that you're going to use, and we'll do that in a second. But um, yes, I actually have a negative gain screen. I think it's uh, minus 0 0.8. Yeah, so, so basically you don't you ideally want to avoid very high gain screens depending on the environment you're using the screen in and depending on the projector you've got obviously if you've got a very bright projector it's not just an issue but again if you've got a room with light colored walls white walls i used to use um before that i had a gray hawk screen so that's uh was that like a 0.9 gain um, yeah, like that. yeah so negative gain screens basically and i know you think well a gray screen or a black screen that just sounds counterintuitive it does to a degree but what it means is it's designed to reflect the light directly back at, for the, to the viewer and, and not reflect back um, ambient light reflected on the screen from the walls or the ceiling. So in, in less than ideal environments, this can be a very useful and very effective way to get a better image um, in, in what would be you know, a normal living environment with, say, white walls or light-coloured walls. Um, the cheapest and easiest way to get a brighter picture is to try and make your room darker. You know, you can buy expensive screens, you can change your projector, you can get a brighter projector, you can do all those sorts of things. But in actual fact, the easiest way to do it is just to try and make your viewing environment as dark as possible. I know that's not easy. I'm not saying get a turn of black paint and start painting the walls black. That's why I did. Very well. <laughs> well, if you can do that, do it. But most people, I suspect, if they start bringing home tins of black paint, are going to have issues with their significant others. Um, yeah, unless you marry can... goth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but what you can do, you can, obviously, you haven't got to use black. You could use a darker color, ideally a neutral color. Uh, you don't want it um, you know, to just, you know, if, if it's a, you know, if you've got bright pink walls around your screen. Well, if, if you just think, <laughs> I, I think the, the easy way to explain it, um, Steve, and, and this is what I've done with certain people who have asked advice on wall colors. If you think about a grayscale ramp, the color gray works great. Um, and, and anything towards the bottom end of that, that scale um, works really well and it's quite fashionable at the minute to have um, a dark grey uh, wall, uh, feature wall or something like that. So you could get away with it that way by having the feature wall being the screen wall where the screen retracts and having that uh, like a really dark grey. Depending on the room as well, maybe if it's in a sort of in an alcove or at one end of the room, you might be able to dark, dark paint 
the area around where the screen is darker at least that helps or if you've got a reflective floor or a light colored carpet try putting down a dark colored rug again that will just minimize reflections from beneath the screen um, there's lots of things you can do obviously cutting out light is important so um, you know get blackout blinds I mean, normal blinds but or, or, or curtains but with blackout material in them to cut the light out when you're watching during the day um, you know, turn off all the lights in the room when you're watching things at night. It's not like a TV where you might have a bit of bias lighting behind the television. That's quite good. With a projector, you really want to make the room as dark as possible. Um, and that, that's, that's the key, really. It, you know, try and find a room that you can light control and make as dark as possible within within reason. And then you need to, to choose a projector that, that suits you in terms of technology. You know, as we go through that in the guide. Obviously, you've got DLP, you've got LCD, you've got um, what, what what's called... Um, well, LCOS, but there's two very fair versions of that. There's SXRD, which is Sony's version. There's DILA, which is um, JVC's version. There's also liquid crystal, liquid crystal on quartz, which is basically Epson's new version of, of LCOS. They all have their strengths and weaknesses, which we go through in detail. But primarily, the one you need to be aware of is obviously with DLP, single-chip DLP projectors. They use a color wheel, which can result in rainbow artifacts. Some people can see and some people can't. So make sure you don't suffer from those before you buy a DLP projector. Because the majority of cheap projectors are DLP projectors, single-chip DLP projectors. Um, they can be very bright. They have great motion handling. They can work quite well in, in rooms with less than ideal conditions. Um, their weaknesses tend to be uh, the color wheel itself and obviously um, their blacks and shadow detail. <laughs> well, well, they just don't have blacks. No, they don't have blacks. It's dark gray, basically. Uh, LCD, um, you've got three chips. So you don't have a problem with the color wheel. You do have a problem, though, or you can have a problem, rather, should I say, over time with um, dust blobs where dust gets into the light path because it isn't sealed on an LCD projector. And also their blacks aren't brilliant either. Uh, moving on to... LCOS, you get um, a lot of the ben you get uh, tend to get things like uh, well certainly with JVCs really really good blacks but also pretty good blacks on the on the Epson I notice and um, to a degree on the Tonys as well. They have um, the way that they're designed. They have less um, fill between the pixels, so you can do a pretty big image on those um, without seeing pixel structure, which you can't really do on LCD projectors. Um, they're all variations of LCD though, so motion handling isn't as good on those as it is on DLP. So it's, it's like I say, there's strengths and weaknesses for all these different technologies. Um, choosing the one that's best for you is going to depend on the environment you're going to be using it in. Well, well, the environment the is the most important thing. Yeah. There's no point looking at an SXRD or a DIY projector if you cannot black the room out. Because yeah. the advantage of those technologies are the black black levels and shadow detail. And if you've got white walls, white ceiling, uh, white carpet, White, white furniture and light coming in the room, forget it. Um, yeah. Look at look at a DLP where black levels are not important because well maybe an LCD if you suffer from rainbows is an alternative. But yeah, yeah. But the room about, is the most so, important sorry, thing. Sorry, I did have a question. Go on, um, go on. Then. Just just a quick, quick. What's the quietest technology? Because when I've been around projectors, the one thing that bothered me is the noise. Because um, I don't know, I just it just bugs me. Um, it all depends on on. The model, but uh, DLA SXRD uh, tend to be under twenty dB, which yeah, you know, once, once it's away from you, you're not gonna you're not gonna hear that. Um, DLP can get really noisy. I mean, that last yeah, DLP yeah. that I, I looked at, um, the BenQ, I mean, it was really noisy. You're talking about 30, is... thirty dB. So, um, and the one with, that you looked at, Steve, the laser one was a little bit loud as well, wasn't it? Uh, that was okay. That was, um, I would say, that was equivalent to uh, one of the J. It wasn't as loud. It was about the same as the JVCs in the. Uh, it wasn't like silent. But, but, it, it but your, room, your room's like mine, isn't it? So you sit right next to the projector. Yeah, I like can a, hear. If it's yeah. loud, I'm going to hear it. I mean, basically, 
the problem with DLP jets tends to be that they often have very bright bulbs, which means more cooling because they're mm -hmm. producing a lot of heat, so a lot more fan noise. Plus, they've also got the noise of the um, color wheel spinning around. Great in the winter. That's though. why they're absolutely <laughs> yeah. brilliant in the winter. You want to don't review one in the summer like I did. Wrong move. Um, but yeah, generally, generally, uh, depending on what you choose, Mark, you can get some very quiet projectors now that you're not going to really notice. I don't think. Uh, I was surprised. What surprised me was when moving on to things like because um, we want to talk about this now since you mentioned it light sources so you've got the different technologies in terms of projectors then you've got different light sources and that predominantly the majority of projectors available these days use a bulb they use a uhp bulb i mean there have been projectors in the past that have used xenon bulbs like the root um, sony vw100 that used the xenon bulb very quiet almost whisper quiet because it doesn't produce as much heat yeah. but they're really expensive yeah, I mean, and you don't want to sit next to one when it explodes no no they are very dangerous <laughs> And really, really expensive, which is why they don't get used very much in domestic environments. But my God, that projector was quiet. Uh, usually it's a UHP bulb, um, of varying brightnesses depending on the model you buy. More recently, we've seen uh, LEDs being used as a light source. Uh, initially, they were on some very expensive projectors. But um, in the last couple of years, we've seen uh, Optoma with their HD91, which uh, is, I think, two nine nine nine. So it's, it's three grand, basically, for an LED projector. That's a, a, a massive drop in price compared to anything we'd seen prior to that. And, and they're relatively quiet. Not as quiet as I thought they would be, because the problem isn't so much that they have to, to dissipate a lot of heat, but that they have to keep the LEDs at a very specific and very controlled temperature. And that required a degree of cooling as well. So they weren't as quiet as they were going to be. They've also got, there was a brief foray into LED uh, laser hybrids. So that was using a laser combined with two LEDs. Um, the ones I've reviewed in using that particular light source struggle. They got they use basically they use um, a laser to create green because green is the biggest part of the visual spectrum, so it makes it brighter than. Because one of the big problems with LED projectors is that LED projectors weren't very bright. Um, adding the laser makes it brighter, but it had this massive green um, uh, green measurements of green in in, in on, on well, the CIE chart. That huge. points that points to a lot of the criticism as well that's that pointed to Sony's and JVCs because people say well they're not very bright. The reason because or the reason for that is the UHP bulb and like you say with the laser they're using uh, green the the vast majority of the energy is green energy green and yellow mm -hmm. energy from a UHP bulb and very very little red and to get an accurate image and when you're talking about JVCs and Sony's that's what they're going for they're going for a cinematic accurate image um, you have to tame the brightness to tame the green and the yellow spectrum basically and boost your red uh, end of the scale and that's why they're not any more than probably about 800 or 900 lumens once they're calibrated because you're basically fighting against the fact that what's giving them the light is also what's making them really inaccurate yeah absolutely um so that's laser led hybrids and now most recently we've seen uh, a laser projector which was the depths the epson ls 10,000. um that uses two lasers and um i have to say I've got the, the review sample that I tested was was very accurate. So certainly in terms of accuracy, they've improved that immeasurably from right, when they so were doing laser two, LED hybrids. So it's using two lasers, Steve. This seems to be the sensible way to go about it. Why? Uh, they're using two lasers. One is one's, They're using two blue lasers for a start. So one's obviously doing blue, and then the other laser is doing is bouncing off a of phosphor and creating red and green. Uh, I think the problem with the previous um, with the LED laser hybrid was basically they were using a laser to just produce the green. So the blue and the red were LEDs, and it was just swamping the rest of the, the image in terms of the color accuracy and the uh, 
and the, the levels of the colors. Um, whereas now that they've, they've, they've balanced it out more and adjusted it. So that you're getting uh, a bright image, much brighter than you would get. Um, I think it's you know, really quite bright image, certainly way brighter than you're getting off of the uh, Sony and JVCs with the UHP bulbs. Um, but at the same time, you're getting a controlled image where you're getting an accurate color. So I guess their approach is, has, has, now I, I think personally going forward, laser projection will become the de facto way of doing it in the end. I mean, it's obviously a cost factor at the moment, but you get, you know, much longer lifespan than you would with a bulb. You get more, 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 more consistency rather with the, than you would with a bulb over the length of that life. Um, and it just seems like a more sensible way of doing it. But clearly there's a cost factor at the moment. I mean, the LS 10,000 is just under 6,000 pounds. So it's not cheap. And you've got to think that actually they might actually just be washing the face basically with that, I think. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> quite possibly. And that's one of the important things about projectors when they're using UHP bulbs. Um, always, I mean, because you've probably seen people do this you know, in, in offices and, and boardrooms and that sort of stuff where they just unplug a projector and don't let it cool down. When it's using a bulb, it's very important that it warms up and cools down before it turns off. Yeah. And that's why when you do turn them off, you'll see the fans will still be going, even though you turn the projector off for some time afterwards as it slowly cools the, the bulb down. That improves its performance and, and its, you know, its useful life. And you really need to do that. You need to be, take care of your projector when you buy it. It's not something you can... Well, a laser projector and any projector, you can just turn on and off instantly like a TV. A bulb-based projector, you need to give it a little bit of TLC. Yeah. And there's lots of manufacturers who have fallen by the wayside, much the same as the TV business, uh, Steve. But what they have done, and I'm, I'm thinking about the likes of Panasonic here who no longer do consumer projectors, but they are massive in the professional side of things. Um, what we're hoping is going to happen over the next few years is that this laser technology once it reaches a certain scale um, and it becomes cheaper it makes a lot more sense to then try and introduce consumer projectors back into the consumer market because like you say they don't need as much TLC they're instant on and off um, the, the light source will last the life of the product it makes more sense because there's lots of things at the minute that put people off projectors and you know the only projectors that they've probably seen are, are stuffed down in a pub or in, like you say, in a boardroom or meetings where that's really not the pinnacle of projection technology and, and the picture quality that you're going to get at home. Um, but I think laser technology, it kind of it makes it more appealing for manufacturers and the general public. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it is a sad fact the majority of people's experiences of projection um, outside of a cinema is in a pub or, you know, or at work and not in, in an ideal situation. And when I have shown people, you know, I say to people, well, I've got a projector, they kind of, that's what they immediately think. Then when they see it, they, they realise suddenly, oh, oh my God, this is, this is like being at the cinema. This is incredible. And, and certainly I was watching The Water Divine last week with a friend. Um, yeah, there was a beautiful image, beautiful projected image, uh, you know, in 1080p. Lovely. And it can do that. And you're right, Phil, going forward, Certain companies are going to have an advantage, I think, in terms of economies of scale. If they're active in the professional market, they can bring this technology through into the consumer market with a degree of success. And that's certainly what um, Sony have been doing, I think, at the, and we haven't mentioned it up till now, but in terms of resolution, if you want to buy a 4K projector, a native 4K projector at the moment, you're limited to, to Sony. They are currently the only um, manufacturer making native 4K projectors for the consumer marketplace. Uh, that may well change next month um, when Cedia comes along, because that's when your new projections tend to get announced. It might be something else. But as it stands, it's Sony. So if you want to buy a 4K projector, that's your only bet right now. 
Um, there are some alternatives like JVC and Epson who are doing their, um, you know, the E-Shift um, 4K enhancement feature, and that will accept a 4K signal. So there's a degree of, you know, you, you do get some improvements there. But in terms of actual native 4K, it's Sony. And basically what they're doing is they're leveraging off the back of their uh, the professional business. And I'm sure we'll see others do that too. Well, the, the first one that came to market, it was, it was just a miniaturized version of a professional cinema yeah. projector. VW, the VW thousand, wasn't it? And yep. even at, at eighteen hundred quid, eight, sorry, eighteen thousand um, pounds, that was a remarkable achievement. I think. I mean, technologically, that was a staggering achievement to to get all that into that chassis, and that had you know DCI color space. I mean, it was a professional projector basically in a consumer chassis, and you know you can see where things have gone from there because you're talking now about the VW three hundred, which came out last year, into last year. And that's uh, that's what's that? That's about five thousand eight hundred, I think, currently. So we've we've already gone from eighteen grand to six grand, and we will see. I'm pretty sure we will see um, some new projectors coming out soon, probably for Christmas, and an even lower price point. That that will be native 4K, because um, you know obviously TV is just taken off now in terms of 4K, and its projection will be next. And on a big projection screen, that's where you're going to really see the difference. In terms of resolution, obviously there are other factors we've been talking about recently, things like you know color space and high dynamic range, that sort of stuff. But certainly, for sheer resolution on a big, you know, big ten foot screen, it's pretty obvious. Whereas it's maybe not so obvious on a fifty inch or even a sixty inch screen. So yeah, it's exciting times, I think. As with TV, it is exciting. There's got changes coming up, but I think going forward next year and the year after, we'll see more four K and more uh, more laser projection as a light source, and and uh, that's why I'm waiting for really personally. Uh, okay, so that is our top tips for setting up your projector. Uh, the projector guide is now available. Go to the projector forum and uh, the articles are stickies at the top in that forum. Go and have a look if you're interested in projectors in any kind of way. And you can also send us your questions either on the thread underneath the podcast uh, or via Twitter at AV Forums. And uh, normally at this point we've got games news, but there is no games news this week. So uh, it's movie news next. <laughs> so you're going to have Steve again. <laughs> <laughs> still there, Ed. Yeah, I'm I'm, 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 I'm uh... Okay, Steve, what's the cinema? The Man from Uncle, the film version of the 60s TV series that starred out, was it Robert Vaughan and um, David McCullum? Uh, basically, the concept's quite simple. It's, it's um, set in the 60s during the Cold War. And um, a Russian agent and an American agent have to team up in order to prevent um, a, sort of a rogue third party from uh, getting hold of a nuclear weapon and, and causing you know, basically worldwide destruction. Um, Henry Cavill, British actor who currently plays Superman, is, plays um, Napoleon Solo, who's the American spy. And Army Hammer, who was most recently seen in um, The Lone, Lone Ranger, playing The Lone Ranger, he plays Ilya Kuryakin, who's the Russian spy. And... Um, it's directed by Guy Ritchie, and kind of like any Guy Ritchie movie, really, it's it's as uh, well tailored and as tasteful and as enjoyable and comfortable as one of his suits. It's, it's basically I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a nice, easy two hours of, of hokum and fun. It hasn't done particularly well at the box office. I think it didn't exactly bomb, but it didn't do very well at all in the states. And I think that might be partly people. A lot of people don't remember the TV series, uh, or it, it lacks real star power. I mean, the, the names aren't that well known in it. And um, 
and maybe uh, you know maybe it's a bit too light, light and fluffy for some people. People just didn't get it. But certainly, I, I found it to be. Uh, I thought the '60s look and feel was very well done. The way that Richie directs it has kind of got that '60s lots of zoom in and zoom outs and split screens and that kind of stuff. Um, it's funny in places. The plot's very uh, easy to guess. It's not particularly clever, uh, but the performances are, are, are fun. Um, I'm, I know you don't like him, Ed, but Hugh Grant, I thought, was quite good fun in it. Not oh, no, don't long, get but... my, my reasons for disliking Hugh Grant actually don't have anything to do with his acting. So I'm sure he puts in a perfectly reasonable performance. Do tell. Oh, it's because uh, of, um, of the press thing, isn't it? Yeah, he's another massively hypocritical twat. <laughs> but again, that doesn't necessarily impinge on his ability to act. Uh, yes, so it's yes, it's uh, it's well made, entertaining, um, uh, and untaxing, uh, and I guess that's what you'd probably want from an evening at the movies. Uh, I think Shona gave it seven out of ten. I'd agree with that. I think that's, that's pretty about right. It's um, yeah, it's. It, I don't think six. it's not going to make. Sorry, she gave it six. Did she? I thought she gave it seven. Yeah. Now you see, she gave Pixels a higher score, and I can't. Oh, that, uh, you... that was Cassandra. Yeah, uh, much to my surprise. <laughs> uh, so, gave Pixels a higher score. Um, yeah, I think a seven's about right. I think it's it's well made and entertaining, um, Man from Uncle, and uh, I think the cast are charming. The direction's good. The story isn't as clever as it thinks it is, but um, yeah, I, I don't think. Unfortunately, I don't think it will do that well. I think probably it's just it lacks that little something to make it. I, I mean, although why Jurassic World's made one point six billion is beyond me. I, I can't explain that at all. So I guess William Goldman's right when it comes to the film industry. No one knows anything. And I would have given it a 7 out of 10, even if Sharina only gave it uh, 6. But I am absolutely gobsmacked that Cassandra quite enjoyed Pixels. <laughs> maybe she's just an Adam Sandler fan. Maybe, maybe. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, I guess you could say there's an immediate and there's an immediate knee-jerk to hate Pixels just because Adam Sandler's in it. And if anyone else had been starring in it, maybe would have thought, well, well video games are going to check it out. So uh, perhaps it isn't as bad. As it, but it has had, with the exception of Cassandra's review, almost universally bad reviews. <laughs> There you go, flying the flag. Vive la différence. Okay, what's coming up at the cinema this weekend, Steve? Sinister 2 and Vacation. Vacation being uh, a modern remake slash sequel. Anyone seen National Lampoon's Vacation? Chevy Chase. Um, Basically, the son from that has grown up at Helms Plains, the adult version, and he's taking his family across country to go to Wally World in the same way that his dad did in the original film. And uh, hijinks and merriment ensues. And probably some very tasteless jokes as well. As long as they're back in a wagon queen family truckster. They're, they're, actually, there was one, they're in some Albanian um, people mover thing. Uh, and there were some quite funny <laughs> gags in the trailer relating to that, I have to say. Plus also in the trailer, the, the rude red band trailer, there was Chris Hemsworth. Uh, and I've got to say, uh, he was sporting a very large appendage. Um, that was quite funny too. Um it, it, it probably would be quite a good laugh, actually. It looks quite funny in the trailers. I do like I'm not going to climb aboard the highbrow wagon. I'm not above a good knob gag. <laughs> <laughs> and is anyone going to see these movies? Yes. Uh, Cassandra has actually asked to see Vacation, so there you go. <laughs> She's not above a <laughs> good knob gag either. She's accused of making us see stuff she doesn't what, want what, to see. What's, 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 um, what's that syndrome that you get where the kidnappy Stockholm, Stockholm, that's what it is. <laughs> She's got Stockholm syndrome. Now, now, have you got this right? Because we we mentioned this once before and we got the wrong city. <laughs> Didn't win this plump for Helsinki. I mean, to be honest. <laughs> I was, I was, wasn't I doing that? I may have been a joke directed at Die Hard, though, because doesn't the guy in Die Hard say the TV presenter go Helsinki as in... Well, I don't know what I don't Helsinki. know what your motivations. Don't for, they call but... it Helsinki syndrome in the film, even though it's actually Stockholm syndrome, because some guy had written a book, a book called... Was it Cat... Ca- something like... Um, 
terrorist captive captive terrorist <laughs> exercise in duality or something like that I don't know I don't know you've taken it a bit I think too I may far. have said it as a joke yeah you've well. taken it too far now yeah, lost me completely my friend. Yeah. Uh, I noticed while I was on holiday there was um, some bang up to date Blu-rays reviewed yes I'll do the Blu-ray roundup is that what you're asking yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> out today of day of recording so on the Monday Videodrome uh, I actually mine arrived yesterday thanks to um, the wonders of Amazon Prime and I've got to say, a fantastic uh, set from Arrow Films. Uh, obviously, the movie video drone, plus four of David Cronenberg's early films, um, early sort of short films he made, um, which is quite nice, and a whole uh, load of extras, and, and also a really nice book that comes with it called Long Live the New Flesh. Uh, so a fantastic set there. Well, if you're a fan of Cronenberg or early 80s horror, um, and I think Videodrome is quite a prescient film these days. Looking back now, it's more prescient than ever. Is that the one where um, you plug yourself into the... Yeah, well, the, 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 he follow, he finds a, a, a signal, a videodrome signal, which is basically broadcasting what can be described as snuff and porn. Yeah. But within that, there's a kind of another signal which actually causes hallucinations. And um, there's a bit where they're wearing a big VR headset and this kind of stuff. Oh, so yeah, yeah. a lot of stuff in it. I mean, obviously, the technology at the time was well behind, but they, they really um, he came up with some interesting ideas that I think are a lot more relevant now. Than they were in, back in '83, and and uh, it's got some interesting ideas. Got, you remember when there's the breathing video cassette in the TV that breathes, and doesn't uh, James Woods put the video cassette into it's Betamax, by the way? I noticed in the film, puts it in his slot in his stomach. That appears. That's the bit I remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's it's a typical Cronenberg, you know. It's it's a bit out there, but um, I think a, a great film um, with a good performance, a fantastic performance from James Woods, and also Debbie Harry's in it too. So if you're a fan of that, this. This, this this new set, this new collector set is absolutely fantastic. All right, also out this week, Gross Point Blank, which is um, an old John Cusack movie. Wayward Pines, which was on TV on Sky recently, and I quite enjoy worth checking out. Humans, which was on Channel 4 recently, and if you haven't seen that, definitely check it out. But it was really, really good. And also The Nick, which is a new HBO series directed by Steven Soderbergh, who I thought had retired, starring Clive Owen about the early days of, um, of um, surgery in America. Okay, well, thanks to Mark for presenting that and, and Steve for talking. Um, right, so 100, <laughs> 123 days until Star Wars Episode Seven, The Force Awakens. Uh, 18th of December, I think we're all excited about this, uh, but there was some stuff went on over the weekend. Uh, very quickly, Steve, and then we'll open it up for discussion and get Ed and Mark to talk. Okay, um, basically Disney had their convention over the weekend where they announced a new lineup for the next few years, not just Star Wars, obviously they also mentioned Marvel and um, uh, Disney stuff like Pirates of the Caribbean, Pixar, etc. But the stuff that probably was most interesting was the Star Wars later stuff. So they had J.J. Abrams was talking about um, some of the characters in the, in the new film and their backstories. I won't go into that because I don't want to do any spoilerish stuff. Um, but um, I think that we mentioned before, um, because it's Disney slash Marvel slash Lucasfilm now, they've got loads of books coming out and comics and things that are basically filling in the gaps between episode six and episode seven. Um, the new TV series Rebels, which is set between episode three and episode four, that its first season's already been on TV and is out on Blu-ray in September. Season two starts soon and that will have Darth Vader in it. They had um, anthology, Star Wars anthology Rogue One, which is the one being directed by Gareth Edwards. They've announced the whole cast for that now, which is pretty impressive. Felicity Jones, Diego Luna, Ben Mendelsohn, Forrest Whitaker, Riz Ahmed, uh, Donnie Yen, Yen, Maz Mikkelsen, Alan Tudyk. Uh, that comes out on the 16th of December next year. So stay right. to that one. Uh, my first question, because I've avoided this stuff even since you told me this morning, and there were some photos as well released, and I've ignored yeah, them. I've ignored them. I don't want to know anything. 
<laughs> don't want to know anything about it. I don't want to uh, repeat 99. But this interests me. Uh, mission to steal the Death Star plans. Now, is that Death Star 1 or Death Star 2? Death Star 1. Right. So it's just before episode 4, basically, it takes place. So is um, that be- so that's before the Bothan spies? Yeah, they were, they were the death, second Death Star. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> yeah, they're not Bothan spies. Um, apparently, it's going to be kind of a, you know, a team on a mission... Battle you know, mission behind enemy lines kind of feel to it, war film vibe. And they were going um, for a morally ambiguous sort of vibe. Yeah. Less, no uh, one's less truly good, so to sounds, speak. Sounds interesting. Um, then uh, um, episode eight will come out on six months after that, so 26th of May 2017. Um, that's Ryan Johnson directing, who made Looper. And uh, apparently, Benicio del Toro is in talks to join the cast for that. Then the following May, May 25th, um, 2018, we've got the, the Han Solo standalone movie, directed by Chris Miller and Phil Lord, who made um, the Lego movie and 2120 Jump Street. They are currently casting an actor in his late teens, early 20s to play Han Solo. And then finally, they announced the director for episode nine, Colin Trevorrow, who just made Jurassic World. Um, he's going to be directing episode nine, which is going to be coming out on the 25th, 24th of May 2019. And then finally, they announced, and I guess this is no surprise, that Disney uh, Lucasfilm will be opening Star Wars Land <laughs> at, at Disney World and Disneyland uh, in the near future. I, I saw the uh, I saw the artwork for that, and uh, if, mm. if they have a full size Millennium Falcon, I, I am there. I might have to go. <laughs> <laughs> I might start crying because <laughs> apparently uh, that's what Kevin Smith did when he got on. The, he had a visit to the set of um, The Force Awakens, and he said when he walked onto the Millennium Falcon set. He just broke into tears. Like that, that, that seven-year-old just came out of him and there was nothing he could do about it. He couldn't help himself. He just started Pull to uncontrollably cry. Together, man. Um, seems to be a lot of mixed reaction to Trevor. Look, um, look, looking at Twitter, there seems to be... This This is the first time, I think, an announcement has caused a, a split down the middle when it comes to the fans. Well, can I ask, um, out of a position of nigh on total ignorance, what else has the man done? He did Safety, a, not, a balance, safety not Guaranteed and Jurassic World. That's his two films. Really? Yeah. me. It was yeah, safe, Safety Not Guaranteed, wasn't it? And that's some kind of um, time travel film, time isn't travel it? Movie. Yeah. Which I really enjoyed. I thought it was very good. Um, well, Gareth Edwards has only made Monsters and Godzilla. Um, Ryan, Ryan Johnson has only made Brick, Blue Brothers Bloom and Looper before doing Star Wars Episode Eight. And even J.J. Abrams hadn't made that many films, although he obviously did two Star Trek movies. Yeah, I don't I don't think, I mean, what they need is somebody who can, I mean, if he's not writing it, it depends on what, how involved he is, but certainly he's proved he can handle a big budget effects-laden movie now and he, deliver one successfully, right? And he, he wrote Jurassic World as well, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. So he's also a writer. Um, obviously, there'll be other people involved, like Lawrence Kasdan and people like that who are overseeing a lot of this stuff at, at, at Lucasfilm. But... You know what you need is someone who can who can handle a, a film of this scale. Um, I mean, I have no idea what's going to be in episode nine, but given it will be the sort of the third of a new trilogy, there's going to be a big movie, right? Um, you need someone who can handle it. I mean, clearly, as Josh Trank proved with the Fantastic Four, you know, he came from having made one little tiny um, superhero-related movie. Granted, but you know, it was a low-budget film for eight million quid, got given 150 million to make Fantastic Four and apparently cocked it up. I mean, granted, Fox were also to blame for making it for the wrong reasons and interfering, but apparently he didn't handle the pressure well. And that's why he dropped out of doing the Han Solo movies, or rather Lucasfilm gave him the boot, probably, when they heard the reports coming back for the set of Fantastic Four. 
But, you know, you want someone reliable who can deliver. And 1.6 billion in the box office, the guy delivered. Okay, he made a film that none of us thought was going to be a success. And I thoroughly enjoyed and, and has made a ton of money. So I'm sure he'll, he'll do a fine job. It's a lot of news all at once, don't you think? Do you think it's too much? Drip it out a bit more. Well, some of that stuff has already been announced. I kind of condensed it all into one email for you guys just to bring you up to speed, really. Because I was assuming as, you were. As, as film fans that keep up to date with everything. <laughs> it's as, I mean, I'm, I don't know. At the moment, obviously, we don't know a huge amount about... Well, I mean, there, there's big holes in our knowledge of all of these things. I've got to say, Rogue One, at the moment, strikes me as the most interesting of these you know, the, the hand silo one is on very very dodgy ground unless you could clone an infant get you know get just get a young harrison ford by you know genetic manipulation it lives or dies on people going well he's no harrison ford um and i just like the idea of being freed from the arc of sort of jedi related stuff Rewatching, I mean, let's say at the moment, Sky's got all of the Clone Wars series on on demand. So I've been, you know, filling in the gaps on those. And it's a constant reminder that some of the strongest episodes in that don't bother with any actual Jedi related material. And it's the, you know, it's the fleshing out of this universe, which strikes me as the most potentially interesting. These are films where I could, you know, I, I, I in many ways, I'm more intrigued by them than you know watching mark hamill lumber his way around <laughs> again so you know i don't know whether that's a a, a a heretical point of view but the these are the ones that interest me um so yeah i mean that, that that's where i have more interest i mean it, it's still ironic that this comes out on on my birthday and the one thing i'm not going to do is go anywhere near this film that's, on its day of release. That's about the third or fourth time you mentioned that. Now. Know, Are you just, just making I, sure that we don't forget that it's your birthday? Is that, is yeah, that what this is all about? Because yeah. I, I, I had already forgotten again. So. Yeah, I yeah. want presents. Thanks for that reminder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm very much, I hope this works at the minute. <laughs> that, that's where I am. I don't think I don't think he's going to balls it up. I think it'll be fine, but I don't know. I've, I've still got bad memories in 99, and uh, I don't want to get my hopes up. Which is why I'm avoid I'm I'm avoiding everything at the minute. Yeah. As long as it's episode seven's okay, I'll be all right. I'm not, I'm not really looking forward to entail so much. I just want to get that out of the way. And just you know, hope that's good. I'm going to pick up Rebels. Is that region uh, region B? Yeah, you can buy it. Um, it's available on Amazon. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, Clone Wars was a really good animated series, and, and this it was like yeah. be fun too. Yeah. No. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. I'll, I'll have a I'll have a watch of that and and start to build myself into Star Get Wars mode <laughs> quite without you know getting overhyped and all the rest of it. And uh, I, I I know what you were saying before um, about the the set and you know walking around the set and that kind of thing. I'd probably be a blubbering wreck as well because I know for a fact that as soon as I'm sitting in the cinema and that big Star Wars logo comes up and the music starts, there'll be a big lump in my throat. <laughs> It's funny though, isn't it? Be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. I can remember after Jedi, you know, there was obviously Star Wars was huge until then, and then gradually, you know, because there was no, there was those stupid Ewok things and, and some kind of animated stuff. But basically, there wasn't much going on. And then by the early nineties, it pretty much finished, isn't it? It was Star Wars was done. No one was buying the toys anymore. No one was buying the books. So there were no more films, and obviously, it all picked up again in the mid nineties, going into the prequels. And now we're looking at a Star Wars movie every year for the next six years. And, which, um, which is another concern. 
Yeah, because there's going to be good, there's going to be yeah, but much. but you know you're taking a risk there. It's, well, it's six films and they've all got to be good. Mm. As long as they can make the kids happy and they'll buy all the merchandise, then yes, I mean obviously that's, that's hit back that they are fundamentally children. Well, no, what they, they should be doing is, is, is what they should be preaching to the fifty, forty, and thirty year olds who have got the disposable income. <laughs> yeah, but don't underestimate the power of a nagging child. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but all they have to do is build a full-size yeah, Millennium Falcon and they'll make an absolute fortune. <laughs> yeah. Go to the cantina, have a couple of drinks. <laughs> Actually, I could, I could be well up for this. I've never been to Disneyland <laughs> or Disney World because I've always hated the idea. But, the, I, I, but you see, I think, I think this is the first time in probably in Disney history that we'll have an adult-only base <laughs> that you go along. Yeah, but you just know that they're going to poke the cantina medley around the whole, on speakers, the whole set, all, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, until people just have an embolism. Yeah, yeah. I was quite disappointed to see that they've re-released, or they're re-releasing the Blu-rays in uh, steelbook covers, but they're just the same stuff as before. Yeah. Vaguely, uh, yeah, I, I was hoping desperately against hope that they might get, we might get some sort of the original versions released on Blu-ray see, prior to. See, that's what I thought was going to happen, which is why it's making me worry a bit more, because you would have thought anybody at Disney that had any sense and thought, how can we make a few million before we say, oh, I know, let's release the originals on Blu-ray. Unless they've got loads of old discs they've already printed and they're just trying to offload everything. Before they do it, some new stuff. Get, get rid of inventory. Or there's some level of ownership confusion over. It could be Fox and stuff going on still, maybe. Hmm. Maybe. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it, it could be, and they need to wait for a period of time before they can do their own thing. Because there certainly were, you know, Fox certainly did have distribution rights prior to. Um, yeah, think, you know, now you mention it, I think there's something that goes till 2020. I'm sure there is. I'm sure I read about this that they have to do it with Fox until at least 2020. I'm sure I read it somewhere. Because are they still books? Are they Disney branded? I don't think so, no. I didn't actually look that closely, but I will now you mention it. I'm sure it might still be Fox. Well, there you go. They, they, as you say, it's a nice little learner. So why just... Why, yeah, why, I mean, why, it makes, it makes no sense why they haven't done it, but that, that does make sense. If they can't do it, then it makes sense, doesn't it? Because you think it anybody... Will... Worth the salt at Disney, we'd have them out. We know they have done 4K remasters and restorations, 4K restorations, shall I say, of, of those films, of those three original films. Obviously, can't do that of the prequels because they weren't even shot it at 4K. Well, they weren't it's shot in weird, film, though, isn't it, Phil? When the curtains open and we don't get the Fox fanfare. No, there is that, isn't there? You're going to have the Disney thing, aren't you? Yeah. Mm. No, it's weird. I think you'll get over it. Can I get yeah, a moment of reality here? You know, I think you'll manage. Uh, right, so, I mean, we're, we're not going to get into it too much because, like I say, I'm trying to avoid as much of this as possible. Um, but interesting stuff that was announced over the weekend. It is getting closer. Like we say, it's uh, 123 days to go. Not long. But staying with Star Wars and moving things on a little bit, there was uh, something which was really quite entertaining um, that we found on the internet a few weeks ago now. <laughs> We've been meaning to talk about this on the podcast for a little while now. Um, and that is the shortlist.com uh, had a um, one of these sort of roundup things where I, I guess it happens a lot on, on Twitter, Ed, where people say, you know, horror hi-fi um, or something like that. And you've got to come up with film titles, but you change them slightly to... Uh, yeah, three. Well, I mean, the one that great one recently was uh, three word apocalypse, 
and someone just instantly shot back with the uh, zombies with diarrhea. <laughs> 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 Thought, well, yeah, you know, that, that's pretty bad. I mean, that would be a terrible <laughs> film, but it would be bad. So yeah, that that sort of thing. Sorry, let's not let's stay on target. Um, I'll, I'll, yeah, nice, nicely done there. Uh, so obviously, John Williams is, is famous for the theme and so on. But what if the the soundtrack to the Star Wars films uh, were done by uh, by different groups and so on? And we've had some album artwork, and I've got to say, it was uh, it was actually um, Superfy, who are uh, high uh, hi-fi and home cinema uh, retailers. I guess they came up with this on Twitter. That, that's what I'm assuming that they did this, and then people started sending in the artwork or whatever, or they've done it themselves. Where um, they've taken well-known albums, Ed, and Star Wars them. Well, yes and no. Um, sometimes they've run with the artist. Sometimes they've run with the title of the artist, and so on and so forth. But yeah, there's been that. Uh, the the link. We'll pop the link into the into the discussion thread. But. Um, it kicks off with a a, remar- a rejig of the uh, original Sex Pistols album. So never mind the Sarlax. Here's the Sex Blasters, Two Packer, um, obviously uh, working on uh, Chewbacca and uh, the late, well possibly late. I don't actually believe he's dead. That's a conspiracy theory for another day. Two Pack Shakur, um, Taylor Sith. I quite liked that one. 1977. Yeah. That was quite clever. Uh, Jabba, as in. Uh, the Scandinavians, uh, Jabba Gold. It's a nice, nice, classy-looking album cover. That, great, although great, I do think that <laughs> four huts would have struggled to win the Eurovision Song Contest. Not being from Europe for starters, but I think they'd have just lacked stage presence. I, or I they'd love, have had plenty of stage presence, just not pleasant. Stage. I love the way they've, they've actually done the album with the bees back, back to back. That's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lady Jar Jar. You've missed one. You've missed one. I'm reading them all out. You can all. You, people can have a look at them in the fullness of time. Um, uh, it's quite compelling, really, because I dislike both of those people. So that's all fine. Obi One Direction, so <laughs> pretty good. Um, what was it? I was trying to work. My um, my my personal favourite uh, is uh, the Republic Enemy, Fear of a Black Planet, with the Death Star. <laughs> I thought that was yeah, that's good. <laughs> it was quite clever. I mean, the the, the one I thought they missed. Um, completely was uh, was was yes, and uh, they could have just done close to the wedge. <laughs> not not because he's my he's my favourite Star Wars character, so I think they missed a trick there. Okay, so question one: R two D two was named after part of George Lucas's address, Road Two District Two, a piece of film editor's uh, jargon meaning real two dialogue two, a judo throw spell R two D two, and Sony's first robot R D two two. Real two dialogue two. Yep. Sorry, I would have guessed. You do, you, you're doing the Star Wars quiz, aren't you? Yep. <laughs> I still hope as well that someone in Disney has read that. We've uh, been looking through. There's a, there's a cracked article. And there's other articles on it of some of the worst characters to have been created in either the novels or the comics of the Star Wars universe. I, I, I just think it would be brilliant to reactivate one of those and then kill them. And I'm not talking about Jar Jar Binks. There are actually things dumber than Jar Jar Binks. Uh, I mean, there was a, a Jedi Master that didn't have arms, which would have made lightsaber combat challenging i suspect um and there was something that looked like bucky o'hare which was in loads of the comics so yeah i i'd, I'd also like them to reactivate some of the, the the dross which has been been created over the years just for the laugh uh, right so we'll put the the link for the cover art um album cover art in the podcast thread uh, we'll put that star wars quiz in there as well so you can you can have some fun doing the quiz um so that's it for the podcast this week my thanks to steve withers you're a petty schmuck Mark Hodgkinson. 
I've come here to say one magic word to you. And dead silly. My teeth have begun to fall out. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, bookmark AV forums for the latest reviews, news and video. Uh, and Steve, what we can do on iTunes? <laughs> no, no, I was, uh, I was being slightly uh, distracted by that Star Wars quiz. <laughs> um, <laughs> leave us a rating on iTunes, but only if you enjoy the show. And make sure it's five stars. I'm Phil, and thanks very much for listening. We're off to do the Star Wars quiz, and we'll see you next Wednesday. Oh, and it's episode 100. Mm-hmm.